Good morning. Appreciate the service thus far and each one that's taken part in it. It's been a blessing. I'd like to uh, talk about a subject that's not at all new. It's uh, one that is uh, very important in the Christian's life, and I guess you would say in all people's lives. It's about the subject of forgiveness and our ability to live in peace among each other. I don't bring this this morning to cast any dispersion on anyone. As usual, my message is always to myself first. Then we look at the subject matter I would like to first commend you as a group. I've been well blessed for a number of years to be part of a group that has been in harmony one with another. And it certainly is a great blessing if you've ever been a, in a situation where there's um, problems among believers. It, it is very painful and heart-rending. I'd like to name it this morning as four different ways of responding to offenses, and that's fight back, flight back, hold back, and love back. The beauty of true and full forgiveness I've heard it said before that Christianity is sometimes like a slow porcupine dance. We get cold and huddle up only to jab one another and move apart and then get cold again and start to cycle all over again. Hopefully that's not the case with us, but we know that any time there are more than one persons involved in the situation, there's sometimes disagreement and problems that arises in such a way that someone becomes offended. God had designed us to be a community creature like smooth running machines have many parts and every part is important. So he designed us to be part of a community, specifically the kingdom of God. But because of the fallen nature of man, it doesn't always run as smooth as God intended it to. When we become members of this church, you know that during the, the application procedures, there is read the chapter in Matthew chapter 18. And for a good reason, because unity in the church is a very necessary thing as I look at our situation today as I mentioned we have had very good uh, fellowship one with another and yet I believe Satan sees that also 
And it's one of his most prominent and useful things is to cause division among churches. I'd like to begin reading at the 21st verse of Matthew 18, if you'd like to turn to that. Matthew 18, 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but unto until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him that owed him ten thousand talents. And I don't know how exact this is, but I looked it up, and uh, this writer indicated that a talent in their monetary system was equivalent to 20 years of labor. So 10,000 talents would be 200,000 years of labor. And that would be 60 million days of labor. In modern money, it would be approximately $3.48 billion. The next several verses indicates he's going to try to pay that off. I always wondered how he was going to do that. And I also just thought about the fact that a person could live 100 years and he would still owe $199,900 years worth of labor. So anyone, if anyone ever comes, tells you that They've lived a very moral life, very good life. Ask them if they're going to be able to live 200,000 years to pay that debt off that we owe God. 25th verse, but for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. <laughs> That day, many of the family members sometimes become servants to other people to help pay off debt that may be accumulated. In this case, all his children and his family members, his wife, were all to be sold in order to pay it off. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him that debt. That same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants which owed him a hundred pence, about a hundred days of labor, wages. And he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry, and came and told under their Lord all that was done. 
Then the Lord, after that he called him, he said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt, because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth, and delivered him to the tormentors, till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Another place, Luke 17, 1 says, Then said he unto his disciples, It is impossible, but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he be cast into the sea, than if he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, Thou shalt forgive him. I think it's fairly obvious that very few offenses come in a vacuum. There are many times that there are past hurts unresolved or things that are brought up by the evil one to get us to be hurt by that. Sometimes it's a present hurts, but maybe even unrelated to the individual that has been offended. Sometimes it's merely jealousy or envy that causes offenses. Other times it's mistrust. And many times it's imaginations, false premises built up in our minds. Many times imagining the worst in others. Of the five ways of of uh, responding to offenses, the first one that I have is fight back. And when we think about some of these uh, things that many times makes offenses uh, more prominent, one of them is past hurts. And I guess I would like to ask, does anybody know what the most dangerous dog is? Now, I'm not talking about breeds in general. Most dangerous dogs are generally wounded dogs. They may not know why they hurt, and yet the person that tries to help them many times is the one that will get hurt by the dog, not because they have done anything wrong to them, but because they're the nearest one to them. And I think many times that happens to people also. People sometimes lash out because of their hurts. They don't know really why, but, but it ends up falling upon those that are nearest to them. thing about fighting back is being the first one, I guess it's probably one of the most prevalent Revenge nearly always expects full payment plus interest. 
retaliation almost always is worse than the first offense. It escalates to damaging proportions while each party involved pulls more and more people into their corner to support their position. I guess there are many events in history we could talk about that this happened to. We know the Hatfield and McCoys, and we know story of uh, Romeo and Juliet and, and probably you could think of a lot of them. As I recall, the Hatfield and McCoys, there was a death initially, but it had pretty much settled down. But the real instigator or the real thing that flared up the great fight between them was the accusation of a stolen pig. And sometimes that's really all it takes to start a problem among people. In uh, Genesis 34, there's an account where uh, one of the daughters of Jacob had gone out into the community and uh, someone in the community uh, dealt wrongfully with her um, defiled her and this news came back to Jacob and his sons and the sons become quite angry about the situation and the Shechem was the one that had defiled their daughter and he and his father came he wanted to marry Dinah and the sons, or the sons of Jacob, decided to uh, deceive them and say, "Well, you, you know, we can't intermarry and intermix without you being circumcised." So, to make long story short, the they agreed to be circumcised along with the people in the city where they live. They talked the men of the city to do this. They said if we we can then give our daughters to them and their daughters to us and through marriage we basically says uh, that shall not our cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours. So they were thinking monetarily they, they would bring in great profits from being intermarried with the children of Jacob. Well, as it turns out, they were circumcised, and three days later, while they were still not healed up from the procedure, Simeon and Levi goes in among the city and kills all of the men of the city. Simeon and Levi were the full brothers of Dinah. The three of them were uh, children of Leah. Jacob's one, his first wife. Well, afterwards, they also plundered their their possessions, took their women and their children as slaves. And Jacob, in the 30th verse says, And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Peritzites, 
and I, being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me to slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And they said, Should he dealt with our sister as a harlot? So we see in this rapid acceleration of this dispute between them. And the results was Jacob now is is feeling like he cannot trust his neighbors anymore. So we see through many examples the results of fighting back. Next one is uh, flight back or to hide away from the situation. Thing about flight back or to hide from the situation, it seems as though people want to avoid confrontation between each other, especially after there's been uh, an offense against one of them. Instead of getting together, resolving the issue, they tend to separate and let the thing continue to grow. I think one example of that was when prior to this incident with Jacob, we see that Jacob, when he had... Uh, gotten the birthright from Esau and Isaac was getting quite old he then was wanting Esau to go out and fix a meal of venison for him and then afterwards Esau would uh, bless, give him the blessing Rebecca heard about the news and she thought that Jacob should have it Jacob already had the birthright, but she also thought he should have the blessing. So by means of trickery, because of Esau's blindness and most likely a bit hard of hearing also, he was deceived by Jacob. So Jacob then takes the blessing and afterwards Esau comes in and finds out that he took the blessing. Rebecca told him to go and flee to his uncle Laban's place until Esau's anger cooled off. But we see, we know that Jacob spent, what, around 14 years uh, getting two wives but then it came to the point where his situation with Laban was becoming difficult, and so they decided to uh, leave and go make a home of their own, I believe back in Bethel, but I don't think it was exactly that town. But Anyway, on their way back, he was to meet with Esau, and we see how that Jacob was very afraid because of that meeting. And I believe Jacob thought about that situation between him and his 
brother many times, perhaps daily, after it had happened. And he had never resolved that issue. He merely ran from it. So it came time that he was going to meet with Esau. And he divided up his family and his sheep and various things into different groups just in case Esau would attack him. And he also sent ahead a gift uh, offering to Esau as an appeasement for his anger that Jacob figured he still had. As we see, Esau did not appear to be holding any grudge against Jacob any longer. And so Jacob had spent many years in a bad relationship with his brother, all because he ran away from it. The third reaction can be that of holdback. This seems to be better and less damaging than <clears throat> to deal a damaging way to deal with an offense by simply absorbing the hurt and moving on by trying to push it out of your mind. Problem with this method, it leaves a damaged relationship, a sense of distrust and, and likely a powder keg that could ignite at the slightest problem that arises between the two individuals. This is quite likely the more popular method used by believers thinking it best to turn the other cheek. But is that really what Jesus meant in his teachings? Many times this can turn into what some call the wounded fawn syndrome, easily hurt and crying out a lot. I don't know if you ever heard of the sound of a wounded fawn. I'm not much of a hunter, but I did look up a, a YouTube short clip on wounded fawns, and it's a pretty pathetic sound that they give. And it's interesting that when they make this sound, the adult deer will perk their heads up their ears and scan trying to find where this wounded fawn is. But the situation with the wounded fawn many times tends to look for ways people hurt them because they're already hurt and it was never resolved. And because of that, they tend to drive people away from them because people are afraid to hurt them again or perceived to hurt them again. And so it drives a wedge between the wounded fawn and the fellow believers. The fourth and the only biblical method is to love back. The story of Joseph, we know well how he, as a youth, was loved more by his father, or at least seemed to be loved more by his father because he was the son of his beloved. 
And at a fairly young age, he had dreams that appeared like he would one day be in a ruler, a ruling situation. I think Jacob, or not Joseph, I'm getting my names messed up. I think Joseph had a pretty good idea that this was going to come to pass. We know at a later age, he interpreted several dreams and was given that gift to interpretation of dreams. And I just wonder if he didn't have this gift even at that younger age and realize that some way, somehow, God was going to put him in an important situation. I don't think he fully knew what it was, but that he was going to. We know about all the things that happened to him. His brothers hated him. They mistreated him. They threw him into a pit. And then, well, he first wanted to kill him. But I think it was Reuben talked him in and threw him in the pit. He was going to go retrieve him later after they had left and save his life. But uh, anyway, the Ishmaelites came along, and some of them thought, well, let's just sell him to them. He'll be down the road and be gone never be a problem again well we know that he was sold to Potiphar and Potiphar uh, gave him full access to all his affairs except for his wife we know how his wife was trying to get him to sin and I think the secret of Jacob or Joseph was manifested in his comment of how could I do this great sin against God? And he also told her that she was off limits when it come to dealing with Potiphar's kingdom, basically. We know that through all these adversities and then through prison and the various things that seemed like the world was against him, almost like God was against him. But each of these turns of events was the pathway to God's will in his life. Of course, we see then through the interpretation of dreams that the Pharaoh then thought who would be greater for this job than Joseph. And he rose to the second in command in Egypt. Because of the famine that was throughout the land, his brothers then came to Egypt to get the provisions they needed, and Joseph recognized his brothers. But his brothers didn't recognize him. And it seemed like Joseph uh, was kind of rough with his brothers, but he was trying to test them to see what the condition of their heart was toward their brother that they had so badly dealt with. Eventually he revealed his identity and his brothers were extremely afraid. Here was this powerful man that ended up being his brother, the brother that they had treated terribly. And yet it was 
Joseph that uh, fell on their neck and wept. We see the full uh, forgiveness of Joseph in that situation. And yet the brothers still had a had a problem. They wasn't sure they could trust him. And then we see it near the end of Genesis where Jacob dies and and the brothers, they came to uh, Joseph. They was prayed that after their father died that Joseph would do something. Genesis fifty fifteen says, And when Joseph's brother... Brethren saw that their father was dead. They said, Joseph will preventure, hate us, and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. They sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sins. For they did unto thee evil, and now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. Joseph wept when they spake unto him. His brethren also went and fell down before his face. They said, Behold, we be thy servants. Joseph said unto them, Fear not. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. That was loving back and brought total reconciliation to all involved. Proverbs 25, 19 says, Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth, a foot out of joint. And as he that taketh away a garment in cold weather and as vinegar upon nitre, so is he that singeth songs a heavy heart. If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he thirst, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall re reward thee. I've always wondered about that verse. Heap coals of fire on his head. That seemed like that was doing the op opposite of being kind. And from what I've gathered, it was a saying for a metallurgical term of melting metal. As you know, many metals melt at different temperatures. And in the old days, they built fires with hot coals. They put the crucible into the, into the coals and blow air on it to bring the temperatures up in order to melt the metal. There were some metals that would not melt during just that process. 
So in order to get the crucible hotter, they would put coals of fire upon the top of the lid that was on the crucible and then blow air on that and it would make the temperatures go much higher and in in most cases would melt that particular metal. They delved a lot in brass and gold and silver. Those were all fairly low temperature metals. And then you get to aluminum, that's a higher temperature. You get to steel, steel is quite a bit higher temperature in order to melt it down. But when you talk about this heap coals of fire upon them, that process was what melted the metal. And I think the writer here, and when it was repeated by our Lord, indicated that the heaping the coals of fire on their head was a term that returning the love of God in turn of something that they've done to us as a person, whether they're believers or even non-believers, is the most uh, successful means of changing their heart. I had to think about um, the example of the Amish at, at Nickel Creek where the students were all mowed down by an individual. The news media thought it was incredible that the Amish parents would have concerned about the parents of the man that did this. As I recall, the man took his own life after he killed all those children. That is a supernatural action to be able to forgive someone that does so great a harm to one's family or to himself. And I think that is an example of the heaping of the coals of fire. Many things can be said to people to try to convince them to change their way, but to love them back ends up being the one thing that most of them cannot cannot resist. Obviously, Jesus showed that great example too when he, at the Last Supper, treated Judas as a special guest. Also, when he hung on the cross after he'd been beaten and tortured and, and was still in incredible pain and suffering, he told Father, please forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Unforgiveness or unforgiving spirit is a self-imposed imprisonment with the prisoner holding the key that would unlock the door. Many, I've heard of numerous prisoners in the physical prisons of our land that 
don't want to get out of prison because it seemed too scary and insecure to be out in the public. Some of them even would do petty crimes just to get back in, which was hard to understand for those that know the blessings of freedom. Offenses happen in many situations and people, situations and people, strangers, church members, families, and friends. And the closer they are, the harder forgiving can be sometimes. And even sometimes it's hard for us to forgive our own selves for something that we've done. Jesus forgave Judas, but Judas could not forgive himself. Some offenses cut very deep and takes time and a lot of mercy and grace to find healing. But if we can place our debts to God right beside our debts that our fellow man might hold against us, our obligations become much clearer. I will close with a verse out of Psalms 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. <laughs>